Thank you, Sean. Good morning, Woodland Hills. You look marvelous. Hey, I want to encourage you uh, to second what Shauna said about uh, being a part of this baptismal service. Baptism, as we said a couple weeks ago, was, is the betrothal ceremony by which the bride uh, is engaged to the groom. The groom is Jesus Christ, and the corporate bride is the church. And so it really is important that others of the corporate bride are there to welcome these folks who are now aligning themselves with the bride of Christ. It's, it's a community event. And so I encourage you to come out and be a part of this. And uh, God always shows up. It's a blessed time. It's a witness to others down there at Lake Phelan. And so come and be a part of this. My name is Greg Boyd. I'm the senior pastor here at Wilton Hills Church. Uh, I appreciate Scott uh, preaching last week. He did a great job preaching on, on prayer. I just felt like that was a powerful message. Um, I got a little worried as I was watching this in the middle of the week as he started using the three great players on the Miami Heat as an analogy for the Trinity. That was a little stretch, uh, but he pulled it off. I, I thought it was quite brilliant by the time it was done. I was just kind of worried there for a moment. Now, what I like to do is actually, we're back in the book of Luke, and I know that for some of you that's really good news because you were going through Luke and withdrawals, quivering and shakes, and I, I got that. Uh, but we're back in the book of Luke, and we're heading down the final stretch. Uh, we've got a chapter and a half to go which means we should be done maybe by the end of this year, but certainly by the end of next year, we don't know. <laughs> but it's probably not a good sign uh, as to the speed we're going to go at that I am going to actually preach on the exact same verses that Scott did last week. I, I have a, God just kind of used these passages to hit me in some different ways. And so there's, there's another angle on this that I'd like to take. Uh, the title of this message, in fact, the whole topic, is one that I know is going to get everybody uh, excited and running the aisles because uh, it's called the Gospel of Suffering. Woohoo! <laughs> it's kind of a paradoxical title because gospel, euangelion in Greek, it means good news. And so this is the good news of suffering. And immediately some people here are thinking that I'm a masochist or something. But I assure you that it's going to be, it's a topic that I think is quite anathema here in most versions of American Christianity, but it's absolutely central to the gospel. And it comes out of this passage that uh, we're looking at, that Scott spoke on last week. Luke 22, verses 39 through 45. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives. Apparently, this is where he often went to pray. And his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. Scott talked about that last week. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing. The Matthew parallel has, Father, if it's possible, if it's possible, and if you're willing, take this cup from me. The cup being a metaphor for the suffering that he was about to go through. Yet, or nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him, which is really the Father's way of answering, uh, you know, you're going to have to go through this. I'll give you this help. Here's the angels. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. I've read that, that uh, under extreme, extreme uh, circumstances and anguish, sometimes people will uh, break corpuscles in, in their, the skin of their face, and the blood will mix uh, with their sweat. And that's apparently what happened with Jesus. The pressure was so intense. And when he rose from prayer, he went back to the disciples. And he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. 
Now, I want to read one other passage that covers the same ground, but from a little different perspective. This is from the book of Hebrews, chapter 5, which says, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears. Son, though he was, the Son of God, though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, Talao in Greek, it means to be completed. It doesn't mean morally improved, but he was completed. Once completed, once, once he was the full human being that God wanted him to be, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. So as he learned to obey the Father, he's the source of salvation to all who then learn to obey him. And, and the question we really got to ask here this morning is this. If Jesus, the Son of God, the all-holy Son of God, had to learn obedience by the things which he suffered, how much more must we who are not usually all-holy and innocent, how much more must we expect to learn obedience by the things that we suffer? Suffering is part of the package deal. Pray with me here. Father, I just would pray that your spirit would anoint this message and infuse it with your authority and power. And use the Lord God to help us to reframe, sometimes against our, 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 our basic physical natures and against our enculturation, to reframe the meaning of pain, the meaning of suffering, the meaning of hardship, and to grow by it and to learn from it and to be transformed by it. And Holy Spirit, we pray also for those who are going to be baptized a little bit later on. God, be preparing their hearts as they now commit to living a Jesus way of life, which involves suffering. And God, just be preparing that time uh, to make it a blessed time. We also pray, Lord, for all who are listening through podcasts or t television or some other means. God, open up their hearts and minds and wherever they're at in their life, Lord God, use this message to bring the kingdom into their life and to kingdomize them and to kingdomize us. We trust you, Holy Spirit, to do that work because words can never do it. In Jesus' name, and all of God's people said, amen. 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 Okay, so this is a message on suffering, on the need to suffer, on the uh, benefits of suffering, uh, even the value of suffering. It could come across as a morbid sermon, and therefore I want to, at the beginning, right out of the gate, say that God is not a God of morbidity, a God who delights in suffering, a God who's against pleasure or anything of the sort. God, in fact, is a God who delights in pleasure. Uh, the Bible often talks about God experiencing pleasure. Pleasure is something that God experiences. Ephesians 1, for example, tells us how, how God it gave him good pleasure to bestow his grace on us. And it gave him good pleasure to you know, just shower us in mercy. It gave God great pleasure. For his great pleasure in his will, he, made, he adopted us as children and made us holy and blameless. And the Bible talks about God rejoicing over us and dancing over us and singing over us. And you look at Jesus and he's the perfect paradigm for what God is like and he's going to parties all the time. God has fun. God likes pleasure. Pleasure is not anti-God. Pleasure is something created by God. Pleasure is something that God experiences. And we are made in God's image. We're wired for pleasure. Pleasure is good. That's why they call it pleasure. Remain in his image. Now, see, some of us come from a background. I got this in my early days as a Catholic. All the neural nets that had to do with pleasure got associated with all the neural nets that had to do with guilt. And so if I'm enjoying something, this has been the case early on in my life, if it tastes good or feels good, there's something wrong with it. Now, you don't maybe know what it is, but clearly there's something wrong. And that's even become kind of part of the culture. 
Like you bite into some delicious food and you might say, oh, this is sinfully delicious. It's decadent, it's positively, decadently delightful. Well, why is it decadently delightful or, or decadently or sinfully delicious? Why not godly delicious? Who invented the great taste of food? It was God. It's not Satan. It's a good thing. God is a God who delights in pleasure. He could have made sex as boring as planting seeds in the ground. Johnny Appleseed. <laughs> he could have done it that way, but no, he spices it up. Huh? He spices it. Uh, I am censoring jokes so much right now. I... I... <laughs> Because there's some wife out there somewhere saying he does. <laughs> but, I'm not, but I'm not even going to say that joke, okay? I'm, not, I, I'm above that. He could have made food. It's so boring. It was like taking a vitamin pill every day. He could have done that. Oh, here's our daily food. And, you, know, you take a little vitamin. No, but he spices it up. Some food you, you bite into. I, and it's like this experience. You know, Shelly and I were, were uh, in Chicago last year on a date uh, our anniversary, I think it was, and, and we went to this restaurant, and we had this squash ravioli, which doesn't even sound that good, but it was like the only vegetarian thing on the menu, but we ate it, and you bite into this, and it's, it, it's like, oh, it, it's a, this experience, it was incredible, how can, ta- how can food have this, this, this experience? You see, that's not like taking a vitamin pill, that's a pleasurable experience, fine food, fine wine. Now, you've got to do it in appropriate context, in moderation. Knowing what you can handle, what you can't handle, and not everything's good for everybody, you gotta do it within guidelines. But in appropriate context, in moderation, knowing who you are, pleasure is good. When a person's out there enjoying their motorcycle, I don't get off on that, but they find pleasure in that, and you shouldn't feel guilty about that. That's that's a good thing. In fact, first Timothy six says God gives us all of these things in creation for our enjoyment. That's a good thing. Enjoying sunsets, enjoying time with family and friends, enjoying fried food, enjoying a nice glass of wine, kicking it back with some entertainment, that is part of how we're wired. That's a good thing. That's a positive thing. That's a godly thing. God is into pleasure. But. There's always a but. But see, there are, there are first-order pleasures and there are second-order pleasures. First-order pleasures are the ones that are immediate. You bite into the squash ravioli and you go, oh. Okay, that, that's a first order pleasure. Things that are immediate, that are just are pleasurable, that, that, those are first order pleasures. But then there are these things that we could call second order pleasures, and those are actually the more profound type. Those are the type that can even bring you beyond happiness and, and, and a nice little thrill to actual joy. These are the pleasures that come from working at something, from striving towards something, a goal that is attained. They tend to be the most profound experiences in life. Those experiences come through sacrifice, through discipline, often by denying a great deal of first-order pleasures. Uh, An analogy that I would use is is marriage. Marriage is for 99.9% of all people, probably for 100% of all people, but the other percentage lies. Uh, But it's not a first-order pleasure, it's a second-order pleasure. It it takes work, you've got to learn it. Uh, you know, when we got married, Shelly and I got married, no one gave us a little bottle of instant mix happy marriage that you put on your cereal in the morning and poof, you have a great marriage. <laughs> it would be nice if it was that way, but, but actually it's not. Shelly and I, I think, have a marvelous marriage. We are great friends. We have passion. We, we, I, I, it gives us pleasure to be together. 
It's, it's solid. It's not perfect. It's always a work in process, but what isn't? But, but it's, it's just, it's, I'm amazed by the depth of love and joy that we have together and honesty and vulnerability. But it's not like that happened overnight. We had to go through some hard times, struggles, times when you have to learn how each other thinks. You look at the other person and, and say, who are you? And, and, and how, what planet did you come from? How does your brain work? I, I can't, my map doesn't belong with your map. And how do we learn how to communicate? And how do we learn how to relate? And how to, you know, and we, we had to struggle through some stuff and there were some sacrifices. I had no idea how relationally challenged I was until I got married. I don't think Shelly did either, <laughs> you know? But it's like, wow, this thing called relationship and talking about stuff and, you know, it was just a, a new gig and we had to go through counseling and a lot of trials and there's times where you're hanging in there primarily because you said, I do, and you said it before God. But I'm here to say that it is worth it, it is worth it, it is so worth it to go through those hardships, go through those trials, but the result is a diamond, something precious, something beautiful that you otherwise would never have experienced. It's something beautiful, but it's a second-order pleasure, not a first. It's a second-order pleasure, not a first. And, and, and for those of you who maybe are in tough marriages and, and you want to bail and, and it's just a pain and, and you don't even like the other person, I, I want to tell you this. If, if, if you'll hang in there, if, if, if both people, and it has to be two, if both people really want this to work, I don't care what has happened. I don't care how difficult it is. I don't care how alien you feel to one another. I don't care what struggles you go through. You can discover the joy of a happy, fulfilling, passionate marriage. It may take some outside work. It may take a lot of sacrifices. There may be a lot of pain involved, but I'm here to tell you, testify to you, witness to you that it is so, so worth it. Hang in there. The best things in life happen because... We sacrifice for it. It takes, it's a delayed gratification. Second order pleasures. They involve suffering. But here's the problem. None of us like suffering. That's why it's called suffering. None of us like suffering. I mean, just on a simple biological basis, we're, we're wired to avoid pain. Pain is there to tell us something is wrong. Notice pain is not bad in and of itself. It's actually a good because it tells you that something is off, something's wrong. But we are wired to avoid that. On top of that, we are enculturated in this culture, Western culture, modern American culture. We're enculturated to interpret all pain as inherently evil and to crave first-order desires, first-order pleasures. Historians will tell you that never has there been a culture on the face of the earth that is as indulgent as our culture. We are just a culture where, on the whole... We get it now. We get it the way we want it. It's, it everything's instant. And we're, we're wired, we're programmed, we're indoctrinated to see all, even inconveniences, as something that are, it's unjust, it's oppressive, it's wrong, it's evil. I've seen students freak out because their computer took 15 seconds to, to warm boot. And they experience like a form of excruciating pain, like someone's put a dagger in their side. What's wrong with this computer? And five years ago, we would have been marveling at how fast it is. But through technology, everything's instant. Everything's now. Everything's my way. And so we're pampered. And what happens is that we raise up a culture of people and we are it. Where we're, we, we, we just crave first order pleasures immediately and instantly. And we avoid all forms of pain like the plague. And sadly, we pass that on to our kids. 
There are some folks where it's like if Johnny doesn't get every possible opportunity to experience every possible thing in life, then you're a bad parent. And so the parents are, you know, maybe driving themselves to divorce by every night of the week, bringing their kids to every possible thing they could possibly get involved in because who knows, maybe maybe Johnny's going to be a great violinist or maybe a football player or a chess player and you want to give him every opportunity. And if you don't, you're afraid there's going to be a thing seeing a therapist in 20 years and being mad at you because you didn't give him that one opportunity. Bad way to do parenting, you guys. Kids need to hear the word no a lot because most of life is a no, right? We're supposed to be training them for, it's okay. It's even okay to say no just because this is family night and sorry, you gotta, you're not going to do everything. Uh, but we have a culture here. And so, so what happens is the, the whole culture, inside the church and outside the church, has a great deal of trouble accepting, embracing pain and therefore moving towards the joy of second-order pleasures. It gets manifested in a lot of ways. I mean, there's a good percentage of people today who just find it, despite their best intentions, find it almost impossible to say no to sex before marriage. It feels Victorian. It feels stifling. It feels oppressive. It feels wrong. It just feels inhumane to say no to something that is so natural before marriage. And they believe in the Bible, and they know what the Bible teaches, but uh, whatever, you know, there's just a strong impulse to say, let's dive in right now and why wait for marriage? It's because we're conditioned to go, you know, in that direction. There's a good percentage of people who, despite the best of intentions, they want to bring everything in their life under the, the reign of the kingdom, but they find it so hard to manage their finances that way. And to even give 10, let alone 20% of their income away, despite the fact that they have a standard of living that's four or five times the global average, they find it impossible to give 10 or 20 or 30% of their income to the poor or to ministry or whatever. And they mean well and they make resolutions, but it just never seems to happen. It's because that requires a painful decision to start saying no to stuff you're used to saying yes to and cutting off stuff and, and, and revising your life. And at a deep, deep level, we're hardwired to run from pain, conditioned to run from pain and to crave and pursue first order pleasures. It's also evident in our culture in this. I read recently that 25 to 30 percent of Americans are addicted. Officially, by, in terms of a psychiatric definition of addiction, they're addicted. 25 to 30 percent. It could be porn addiction. That's epidemic right now. Porn addiction, uh, drug addiction, prescription drug addiction, illegal drug addiction, uh, tobacco, alcohol, gambling, shopping, you name it. There's addictions that impact and bring a negative effect on, on people's lives. And there's a lot of reasons for that, I'm sure, but what they all have in common is this. Getting out of an addiction involves a lot of pain. Somebody say amen. Getting out of an addiction involves some pain, and at a core level, we're indoctrinated to think that we have a right never to embrace pain. It's always a bad thing. And if at some level your brain thinks that way, you're just going to find it really hard to put up with the pain of getting out of an addiction. When I was in grad school, worked construction and other kind of jobs that I just hated, and, 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 and a lot of these folks chewed tobacco. So I started chewing tobacco in grad school. And I knew that I was going to be addictive, and I know well, it's so big deal, I get off it when I need to get off it, but it gave a little bit of pleasure in the midst of an otherwise totally miserable job. And so for two years, I had a little pinch between the gum and cheek as I was laying brick and doing all that kind of stuff. And when it came time to get off of that, because I didn't want to stay on it, it was, I know I'd never, you know, stay on it permanently, I didn't want mouth cancer, and I didn't want tooth decay, and I didn't want the brown teeth, and I didn't want the bad breath, and I don't want to be a slave to anything. So it came time to quit. I could not believe how tough that was. 
man, that was a beast. And some of you know what I'm talking about. It's like for about two months, you just don't feel right. You know what I mean? And what could be tobacco, could be alcohol, could be anything. You just you feel like an alien, and you're you're hungry for something, and there's absolutely nothing that will satisfy that hunger except the Copenhagen. It's always talking to you. Hey, come on, one more dip. Come on, just one more dip. You see, but if you want the joy of being free and not getting mouth cancer and not having teeth fall out when you're 50 years old and, and having bad breath, well, then this is the price you pay. You got to go through those withdrawals and stuff. And it's not fun. It's totally unpleasant. But see, if, if, if you're conditioned to think that you always deserve to avoid pain, well, that makes it all the harder. In fact, you may find it absolutely impossible. As a culture, we've indoctrinated to run from pain as though it was always intrinsically evil. And it's not. People run from the pain of relationships, uh, either the pain of conflict in relationships, the conflict avoiders. They always find a way to dance around conflict. Or there are people who have maybe been rejected and experienced the pain of rejection. And so they're always afraid of being vulnerable. So they always have this wall of invincibility. And as soon as relationships start to get too deep, and by the way, in my experience, it's men who have this problem a little bit more than women. But as soon as the relationship starts to get a little deep and vulnerable, they get scared and put the walls up. Or as soon as there's conflict, they bail. You see, and because of that, I, I'm getting some amens. I'm getting a few amens. Come on, sister, bring it on. You, you know what I'm talking about. All right. Yeah, see, see that, and the, the price you pay, oh yeah, you, you can protect yourself from the pain, but you are now denying yourself a great second-order pleasure, the greatest second-order pleasure of relationship, of de- deep friendships, you know, profound friendships, uh, people who can speak into your life and you speak into their lives. Frankly, there are a lot of marriages where, where because you're doing the, the conflict avoidance thing, you don't want to rock the boat. And I, and I know what, what that's about. But because you're doing that, you end up being just sort of roommates without benefits. And maybe some of you are saying, yeah, and there's no benefits. You know, that's not, what, that's not God's great plan for a marriage. You know, if you want to get to the diamond of a, of a great marriage or just a deep friendship, there's got to be conflict. There's got to be confrontation. There's got to be pain. There's got to be vulnerability. Otherwise, it just doesn't happen. Some people run from the pain of the past. A lot of us do. And we don't even know it necessarily. You, you run, you've had rejection or you've had abuse. Terrible stuff maybe has happened. And it's painful and so what you do is you run from it. Maybe you don't even know you're doing it. But you can do that by medicating yourself in various ways or by pouring yourself into just a world of first-order pleasures or by distracting yourself. This is a number one one in, in, in America. We, we distract ourselves. We get involved in our work. You know, We get involved in various causes. Or you get involved in religion. And we get obsessed with you know, various causes where the world hangs in the balance on what me and my holy club does. Or, or, or we, we got to for sure figure out who the Antichrist is and you get involved in all this end time stuff. And it looks so righteous and great, but it gives the illusion that your life is full, but really you're just running from pain. Afraid to face the pain. And maybe the most tragic thing of all is the pain that we all have, all human beings have, at the core of our being. It's what I've called Zainsucht. It's that yearning for something that we just can't, can't put our finger on. But what it is, it's that yearning for meaning and for purpose and for significance. And it's there on purpose. It's a God thing. It's our homing device to drive us to God, to get closer and closer to God, to never be satisfied with the status quo. It's a hunger always for more. And as long as we're alive, it's always going to be there. It's, 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 the, it's the, the drive that pushes us 
to increasingly radical ways of, of kingdom living if we let it. Because we're just, there's always more. There's always more. Never quite satisfied. That's a good thing. But it's also an unpleasant thing. A sort of painful thing. And so what we do is, if, we don't, if we're conditioned to think we, pain is always bad, we run from that, and we distract ourselves, and we pour ourselves into different causes, or we medicate it, or whatever, and we lose out the great second-order pleasure of growing closer and closer and closer in relationship with God. To the degree that we run from pain, suppress pain, deny the pain, distract ourselves from the pain, medicate the pain, I'm talking about these fundamental pains in our life. I'm not talking about the temporary back injury you've got or something like that. But when we make it a lifestyle, we block off all second order, at least the best second order joys, the second order pleasures. And sadly, that is the greatest stuff in life. When we block all pain, suppress pain, run from pain, distract ourselves from pain, we're less fully human. We're less fully alive. We don't feel as deeply as we ought to feel. We, we don't love as profoundly as we could love. We don't have compassion and empathy like we could have. We're too afraid of running from pain. We walk through life half anesthetized, numb. And yeah, we don't feel the pain. Trouble is we won't feel much of anything else. To get to the second order joys and pleasures we've got to sacrifice and embrace pain now if that is true just as a life principle how much more true it true is it in the kingdom of god the kingdom of god always intensifies what is true on a general human basis if it's true that you have to suffer for deeper more profound goods as a general human truth it's so true all the more true exemplary true in the kingdom of god and that brings us to the passage we're looking at here to be in the kingdom of God means, by definition, you're under the reign of God. Kingdom is the dome in which God is king. To come under that dome means he's king of your life, which means you are submitted to him. The biblical truth is that the greatest pleasure, the greatest joy in life is being submitted to God as king. Now, that sounds odd. In our fallen framework, we see submission and obedience as bad things. Because we think of tyrants. And some people have a picture of God that, that no one would want to be submitted to because it, it's a picture of a tyrant, cruel or whatever. But if we could see the beauty of who God is and the love that he is and the peace that he is and the joy that he brings, we'd understand that to be submitted to God as king is to be submitted to joy, love, and peace. Like Paul says in one of his epistles, let love rule in your heart. Well, to be ruled by love and ruled by joy is a pretty good thing. And so the greatest pleasure in the world, the one that will last forever, if we submit to it, is having God as our king. The trouble is, or the, the question is, that's a second-order pleasure, not a first. It's, it's, a, it's an acquired taste, if you will. Learning how to find the joy of being submitted to God, learning the joy of obedience, is not something that comes natural to us as human beings. If Jesus had to learn obedience by the things which he suffered how much more do we have to learn obedience by the things which we suffer the only way to get there is to go through that jesus didn't want to go to the cross not not it wasn't his first choice as he looks at the physical pain he was going to endure and even far worse the spiritual pain he was going to endure i mean for the for the son of god to experience the sin of the world and the consequences of that sin would have been more nightmares than we can possibly ever imagine. So, of course, as Jesus is looking at this in the garden, he's saying, Father, if there's any way to let this cup pass, 
That's what I would want to do. If there's any way. And that's a normal, natural, and fine thing to pray. But then he also prays, nevertheless, if it's not possible, if this is what has to be done for us to attain the goal that we have, then I submit myself to that. He didn't want to go through this. It was unimaginable suffering. He could have got out of it. He could have called legions of angels, he tells Peter. He could have chosen a first-order pleasure over the suffering that was necessary to go to the second-order pleasure. He could have gone home, gone to bed, had a nice glass of wine or whatever, lived on a normal life. But had he chosen that, he would have denied himself and denied all of humanity the second-order pleasure of being under the loving, beautiful, peaceful reign of God. That's why the Bible says, Hebrews 12, it says, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. Look at this. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. For the joy set before him, that second-order joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And then it tells us to consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that we will not grow weary and lose heart when we endure opposition from sinners, when we suffer the way he suffered. Note here, it was for the joy that was set before him that he was willing to endure the cross. The joy of doing the Father's will and the joy of being with you and with me in eternity forever and ever and ever. It gave him great joy to do that, but it also involved unimaginable suffering. And here's the thing. We often go, yay, 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 when we hear that God did that for us, and we should. It's the most beautiful thing in the world. He did that for us. Jesus did that for us to reconcile us to the Father and set us free from the devil and all of that. But he also did it as our example of what it is to live under the reign of God. He didn't just do it for us. He did it as an example for us, which means we are to follow in the footsteps of that. That's why the passage says... Fix your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer, the path marked out. He marked out the path that we're to follow when he went to the cross. This is what our life is to look like. And I know that it's so unpopular in American Christianity, which is largely bought into the culture of indulgence and comfort. And God's here to be our Santa Claus or vending machine and give us all of our yum-yums and make our life a little better and nicer. That's, that's what we want to hear. But I'm sorry, folks, the true gospel tells us 20 times, more than 20 times, actually, in the New Testament, to expect to suffer. Expect it. It comes with the territory. If we suffer with him, Paul says in Romans 8, then we shall reign with him. It's part of the package. In fact, even in Hebrews, it tells us, it goes on a few verses later, and it says that, that uh, endure hardship. Expect this. This is not, don't think it odd. Endure hardship, but endure it as discipline. Because God is treating you as his children. For what children are there that aren't disciplined by their father? Expect to suffer. Now, let's, let's get this straight. Um, a lot of people, when they hear the word discipline, you immediately think punishment. Right? Spanking. Bad boy. And so when you hear this, and a lot of folks are, you know, you may come from backgrounds that have taught you this, where, where any hardship you go through, your first question is, and this is also part of the culture, what did I do to deserve this? The assumption is God's getting even on you. God's, you know, paying you back for the lie that you told yesterday or something of the sort. No wonder you got cancer, huh? Or whatever. And there's a lot of thinking on that. The word discipline here, this is so important, is paideia in Greek. The word paideia, we get the word pedagogy from it. And it simply means to teach, to train, to educate, to nurture, to discipline, to raise up someone. Paideia, pedagogy. 
So the author is saying, when you go through hardships, don't be afraid of those hardships. Don't run from those hardships. Don't suppress those hardships. Don't deny those hardships. Rather, embrace those hardships as ways in which God educates us, nurtures us, trains us, heals us, develops us, makes us Christ-like, prepares us for the coming kingdom. They're not altogether bad news. Now, how they got there may be terrible news. If you were day-raped in high school and now suffer trauma because of that, that's not something that God brought on you. To say God uses hardships does not mean he brings the hardships. If you are raped in high school or anything of the sort, God's not a rapist. The rapist is a rapist. That's about the rapist, not about God. And it's so important that we separate, keep distinct what God does and what evil people do and what evil angels do. A lot of what we go through in this world is a result of what evil people and evil angels and other corrupt forces have brought into this world. Don't loop your picture of God up with all of that junk. God is altogether beautiful. He doesn't bring that kind of stuff. But, but, here's the promise. Now that it's here, how it got there maybe was demonic. But now that it's here, God can use it to train us, to equip us, to nurture us, to, to develop us into the kind of people that are fit for, for the kingdom. The hardship you go through doesn't have to be just gratuitous suffering or meaningless suffering. God brings a purpose to it. He doesn't cause it for a purpose. No, he doesn't cause it at all. But he brings a purpose to it. He's involved in the suffering. If we let him, he's involved in the suffering to nurture us, to train us, to conform us to the image of Christ. There's a good news at the bottom of the suffering. That doesn't mean that what happened was good at all. It was demonic, perhaps. But it's good now that God is there and he can bring good out of it. This is what Paul's getting at in Romans 8. When he says, in all things God's working together for the better for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. What a beautiful verse. In all things. Notice, it's in all things that God is at work. He doesn't cause all things so he can work. It's in all things that God works. He doesn't cause all things so he can work. He may hate what happened to you, but he can he still be involved in it. And notice, it's in all things. All means all. It means encompasses everything you've ever been through. There's no experience, no pain, however nightmarish, that you're involved in that God is not involved in if you let him to bring good out of it. He hates the fact that you were raped. That was demonic. It should never have happened. But it's there now, and the pain that you have, he'll be involved in that to bring redemptive purposes out of it, to teach, to train, to turn it around for, for the better. He hates the fact that you're dealing with cancer or blindness or paralysis or muscular dystrophy or lupus or whatever it may be. But he'll be involved in that. In all things, he's involved to bring it together for the better. He maybe hates the fact that you, you went through that painful divorce or had that abortion or committed that murder or whatever it may be. It was totally against his will. But now that it's here, now that it's here, the pain that's going on, if you will embrace it and stop running from it, medicating it, pretending like it's not there, well, then, then he can use that for your advantage and the advantage of the kingdom. There's good news at the bottom of the suffering, praise God. There's good news at the bottom of the suffering. Amen. It's not good news that it happened. It's not good news at all that it happened. But it's now that God's there, God is always the good news. <laughs> you know, the pain is just pain. See, here's the thing. You're going to go through hardships no matter what you do. And that's human life. The question is, will your hardship be a discipline, a pedagogy, a nurturing? And, and, and if we'll surrender to God, he'll make it that way. In fact, in Romans 8, a passage I just read, it, it, it says, God is at work together in all things. The word he uses there is synergeo. We get the word synergy from it. And it means to work alongside of, to work together, to cooperate. 
And so what Paul is saying here is this. And this is why, this is why he says it's for those who are called according to his purpose. He would do this with everyone if they'd let him. But it's only those who know his purpose and know who he is and he's involved in this that are, are, are there to surrender their pain to him. And so for all who will cooperate with him, who will surrender their pain, he'll be involved to bring good out of it. Knowing his purpose is to conform us to the image of Christ and to get us fit for, for, for heaven. He'll be at work in every single, even the nightmarish experiences of life to bring good news to them, to educate us, and to train us. But see, folks, if we're running from the pain, suppressing the pain, medicating the pain, distracting ourselves from the pain, pretending like it's no big deal, we're simply get, not giving him a chance to do what he wants to do. You're still paying for it in other ways. You're just not letting him in on what he wants to do with the pain. That's why it's so important that we face the pain, embrace it, surrender to him and say, God, do your will. Now, how do you do that? Well, let me just say this. It really comes down to, and tell the children's church are going to go five minutes over here, just five, maybe six, I'll try to keep it five. But it's all how you frame things. How do you frame it? How do you interpret it? If you interpret, if you accept our culture's indoctrination and interpret pain as nothing but bad, every, every neuron in your brain and every bone in your body will want to run from it. Because we're wired to run from bad stuff. But if you can frame the pain as having a good dimension to it, not that what happened was good. No, not at all. But now that it's there, it has a good dimension because God is there. If you can frame it as a positive thing, well, now you're in a position where you can begin to embrace it, face it, feel it, and surrender it, and now be transformed by it. And that's good news. It's a little bit like this. You wouldn't know it by looking at me now, but 20, 25 years ago, I was a pretty good ultra-marathoner. That's right. I used to run marathons. Ultra-marathon is anything longer than 26 miles. So I, would, I specialized in 50-mile races and, 60, and, and 100K races, 62 miles. And frankly, I was okay. I was pretty good. Oh, don't, don't, don't make me tell you. No, don't, don't, don't make me tell you how good I was. I don't want to go there, but, you know, 25th in the world championships. Oh, don't make me say that. No, don't. Okay, look. Well, here's the thing. I did pretty good. Uh, that, despite the fact that I usually was terribly undertrained, I, I, I was lucky if I got 40 miles a week in training. Most of the people there ran 140 or more miles a week. And plus, uh, God had this sense of humor where he gave me a marathoner's heart. I, I have a world-class stamina system, but he gave me a wrestler's body to go with it. <laughs> See, if he would have made me 50 pounds lighter, I could have been somebody. I could have been great, man. I could have done Olympics or something. I know I could have. Because I got this heart that's just like, you know, 40 beats a minute. It's just, it, I got a really strong heart. But I had to carry around an extra 50 pounds. So that's why I couldn't be world class. But I did pretty good. Now, here's why. Uh, aside from the stamina, I trained my brain to frame pain as a good thing. I'm biologically wired to want to run from it, which is why when people are running and they start to get tired, they slow down and, and they want to quit or whatever. But I would frame a pain as a positive thing. I interpret it as, as this is allowing me to do what I want to do. And, and I would embrace it. Yes, bring it on. Thank you. May I have another kind of a thing. <laughs> you think I'm a total sicko masochist now. But see, I, by embracing that, it, it, would, it, it would just allow me, empower me to endure it and, and benefit from it. In the 100K uh, uh, World Championships, I and Pat Fullman were, were ran it. He's in the congregation here. Uh, in 1991, and, and we were doing this thing, running into 30-mile-an-hour headwinds for 62 miles straight. 
And by mile 50, man, my toe, which had been throbbing, it all of a sudden exploded because of the pressure of the pounding. And my shoe was all red with blood. And right around that same time, I started to barf up, uh, pop. I had too much Mountain Dew, and the fizzles were coming back. And I was eating these power bars, and they all, I was up chucking. And, but I was after this Aussie who had just passed me and made a snide comment along the way. So I'm running with this exploding toe, and I'm barfing. But I was going, yes! Bring it on! Yeah! Yeah! More! <laughs> Sickle! <laughs> That's good. But see, there's kind of an exhilaration there. How close to death can I get? You see? And because of that, I passed that Aussie in the last mile. Thank you very much. And uh, did pretty well in the World Championships. And it wasn't just, it wasn't just the placing. It was, it was the, the sense of accomplishing that, you see? And, and it was kind of worth it. Now, I know that sounds masochistic and sick, but actually the analogy works. What does the verse say? We read it. Run with perseverance. Perseverance, the race, marked out before us. That means there's pain involved. Life is, is at least a marathon. Sometimes it feels like an ultra marathon. Sometimes it feels like an endless marathon. Fixing your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer, perfecter of your faith. Why? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. There's a joy out there. It's the kingdom of God. To be conformed to the image of Christ. To have a life that's totally congruent with the Father. But to get there, we've got to suffer. There's plenty of material for that to go around. <laughs> so some of it comes because we're Christians and there's unique hardships that come with that. A lot of it comes just because we live in a war zone. But it's so important that we don't run from it, but we embrace it and go, yes, God, work in this to bring good out of it. It may be very, very unpleasant, painful, bad. In fact, that's why it's called pain. But if you embrace it and offer it up to God, you can find a peace in the middle of it. It could be terminal cancer. There can be a peace in the middle of it. It could be a problem you can't figure out, but there's a peace in the middle of it, and even a joy because you know that God's using this. You may not know how, but he's using this to conform you to his image, which will then make you fit for the coming kingdom. There's good news at the bottom of the suffering. Close your eyes just for one minute. I'm going to leave us in this exercise. And I encourage you, we have homework out in the gathering area, uh, and to meditate. This is the kind of thing we need to cultivate into our life. A one-shot deal, there's no magic. It's something, a discipline we got to practice. But try this and engage in this frequently. Right now, take a deep breath and let yourself feel. Now, that sounds like a weird question, but it's amazing how much we don't feel. Give yourself permission to feel. Feel. Whatever's real, feel it. And then, now... Allow yourself to feel pain. Ask the question, where is the pain? What is, all of us have something for sure. It may be a relationship that is hurting, with a spouse or a child, or it may be a physical pain or an emotional distress, a worry, a concern. What is paining right now? Feel it, just feel it. And then take one of those and represent it in your mind somehow. Represent that pain. See it, feel it, embrace it. Maybe you've spent years pretending like that wasn't there and now all of a sudden it's there. Hold God's hand and feel it. And it may hurt, literally, like hell. And as you're facing that pain and embracing it, it's okay to pray. It's Maybe even the right thing to pray. Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. If it's possible, Lord, uh, show me the way out of this mess. If it's possible, Lord, heal me from this disease. If it's possible, yeah, go ahead, pray that. that. That's a normal, natural, good prayer. Maybe that will happen. But you also have to pray 
if it's not possible, for whatever reasons, Father, I submit myself to your will. And your will is to use this pain to nurture me, to train me, to educate me, to conform me to the image of Jesus Christ and make me fit for the kingdom. Use it, Lord. And say yes. Say yes. Yes, Father, do it. Yes, I affirm that even though the way the pain got here maybe is totally of the devil, the fact that it's here and the fact that you're here means there's a good dimension to it. I affirm that and I offer it up to you. Embrace it. Don't run any longer. Don't distract yourself. Embrace it. And it may be a long road to tow here. Maybe this pain's going to have to be embraced for a long time. On the authority of God's word, I promise you, it is worth it. Say yes. Say yes. And watch. There, there can be a, a sense of peace in the midst of this terrible suffering. A sense even of joy in the midst of this terrible suffering. Embrace it. As I, I'm going to close in prayer here, and I, I'm going to ask the prayer team to come up. And if you'd like to pray about anything, I, I encourage you to come forward and pray with these folks. Or if you just want to kneel at the altar, if you just want to stay seated. If God's working in your life on this, don't run. Let them keep on working. I want also invite you, remind you about the dinner that we have after the service and then the baptism service at 2 o'clock. I encourage you to come and be a part of this. But Father, I want to close this by just saying, uh, praying, Holy Spirit, help us to be courageous as we hold your hand, as we face the pain of relationships, the pain of the past, the pain of our bodies, pain of whatever it is we're going through, God. Help us to embrace it, to offer it up to you. And if you can free us from it, then do that, Lord. But if it's needful that we go through it, help us to say yes. Help us to embrace it. Help us to affirm it as something that's going to bring us to the greatest second-order pleasure there is, which is living under your reign forever and ever and ever. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. God bless you guys. Go out and build the kingdom.